0: i Linda. Can I please have your attention? Can you dig Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We uh, are commencing the, 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 the baton death march of stockpiling podcasts uh, this week and next so that, we, so that I can take some time off. And uh, so we're recording at a weird hour on a weird day, but I wanted to get today's guest back. seemed like a great opportunity to do that. Uh, Sean Bushway, he's a professor at the State University at Albany. I've been told that that's the correct way to say it. They're not quite as obnoxious about it as the Ohio State University, but give them time. He's also an adjunct researcher um, at the RAND Corporation, which is probably the closest real life gets to what Hollywood thinks think tanks are like (laughs) Um, as someone who's spent a lot of time in the think tank world. Um, And Sean, you spent a lot of time studying crime and recidivism and all the rest. And you have a new pile of research, uh, which people can find. We'll put in the show notes, resetting the record, the facts on hiring people with criminal histories. And it's actually a compilation of a, Bunch of research that you and your colleagues have been doing. So, first of all, welcome back to the Remnant. Hey, thanks for having me. You're famous. I got at least three people to notice it after I was on your show. So, very nice. Let's go for five. Anybody who listens to this who knows Sean, say, "Hey, I heard you on Jonah's podcast." Let's see what number we get. Okay, I'll, I'll report back. Please do. Please do. I have to admit, one
1: of them was my dad. that's
0: no shame there. <laughs> um, you know, your 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 dad is a discerning and fine American. Thank you, Mr. Bushway. So, um. Why don't we just sort of before we get into the research stuff, because it's sort of that's sort of the it's not the end of the story, but just sort of for some level setting. Last time we had you on, it was because everyone was freaking out about crime. People are still freaking out about crime, but it has it feels like the numbers are moving in the right direction for the most part. And I'm not saying like it is it is a rule of journalism going back since the beginning of journalism. That crime is always self-justifying as a news story. It's all about the amplitude um, that you, and the context that you give it. Um, so I'm not trying to say that people should stop covering crime. People should always cover crime. Local news maybe covers it too much or in a sensational way sometimes. It feels like it's, it's, it's taking on a bit of a more of a political frequency than I think you could argue a f- couple years ago. So anyway, with all that uh, throat clearing, where do things stand?
1: Oh, it- Fortunately, uh, firearm homicides, which is the thing that really spiked, um, are decreasing um, in most cities. uh, Not as much as I think we would like. Um, And since obviously homicides are the other thing that most people worry about, is the thing that causes the type of crime that causes the most harm. You know that that increase has been a big deal, and the decrease should also, you know, be reassuring that there does seem to be some declining there. Again, we'd like to see more. The overall crime rate relative to, you know, not including but not limited to homicides actually going down, continues to go down. Um, And I think, you know, with your story, you know, with respect to the media, and one of the issues is that's related to that is that everyone always thinks that crime is going up or that crime is bad, except in their neighborhood. And, you know, the fact of the matter is crime hasn't been as low as it is now in the United States since the 1960s. Um, and that is, you know, continuing to be true in lots of different dimensions. And then the, the good news that we sometimes lose on that is that crime is particularly down in, among, in the African-American community, which is really good news. And so the racial disparity in the criminal justice system has dropped um, across a number of different measures and different uh, points of entry into the view. And, that, and that's all very good news. Um, it doesn't mean we're done or that, you know, that, that everything's as good as it could be, but it, it does seem like there are a lot of positive stories coming out of the criminal justice and and crime uh, side the dolphin don't get featured in the media
0: so again i fully understand that the plural of anecdote is not data and that these things don't have uniformity across the country you know it's it's, some of its regional all that right but like you know in washington dc carjackings have been on the rise i don't know maybe they've ticked down recently but they've been definitely on the rise for the last few years and moreover they've been on the move in the sense that they've been happening in neighborhoods that you know would would shock you if you lived in DC to find out there was a carjacking you know recently not too long ago there was a carjacking in Bethesda Maryland in a ni- nice neighborhood where my daughter would frequent and so obviously I care more about it because it scares me i guess the way to ask this is sometimes people figure out some new Crime, right? It's some, some, and then it has this long tail because you get adopters to it who figure it out, and they're going to ride that practice until the penalties or the rewards fix the cost-benefit analysis. Is is carjacking is seems to be one of those things.
1: I mean, the ones that I'm more familiar with are the gang shopliftings and the uh, catalytic converter thefts, which are also common in places like Chevy Chase and Bethesda, from what I understand. Um, and becoming, you know, didn't exist you know, catalytic converter theft wasn't really a thing uh, until recently. Um, so, I, I mean, it isn't to say that, uh, I I think there are two things. One is that those types of crimes are, you know, a little hard to track, especially since you know, people don't know how to report them. Uh, but the levels of crime that we're experiencing, even with that, are nowhere near where they were in, say, the 90s uh, and 80s. And so I think, You know, should we be worried about these things? Sure. Um, But is it anywhere near the level of concern that we had in the 80s and 90s? No. And, you know, is there some risk that these concerns will drive the politics such that we make some of the same mistakes that we made in the 80s and 90s vis-a-vis criminal justice policies that led to the fourfold increase in the number of people incarcerated, large increases in racial disparity? I think those are legitimate concerns that people have. And to the extent to which we can understand the problem, I think it helps a lot and, and I think knowing, for example, that young people today, I mean, there's some new results that are just stunning, right? So do you remember back in the, you know, during the presidential elections where everyone said 30% of African-American men were going to be imprisoned by age 30? Do you remember that? It's only been cited 16,000 times, right? right? There's a report from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Well, those people are now, uh, you know, you can actually look you know that was a prediction made by the bureau of justice statistics in, in 2000 you can actually look now in 2020 and see how, what those rates are and then the actual rate is like 15 percent, which is obviously not great it's still really high but it's nowhere near 30 percent and the prevalence of people under the age of 25 in the prison system is dropped in half so we're talking about massive drops in particularly among young people and, and there's a growing understanding in criminal justice and the criminology about this, these cohort effects where you see birth cohorts that are coming of age now that are have much lower levels of involvement in crime than, you know, say you and I, the generation X uh, had um, in the 80s and 90s. And, and it's stunning. And, th- and it's unlikely those are going to reverse. Right. The peak periods of crime for people in their life course are in their mid uh, their early 20s and late teens. And you don't get those back, right? And these people have already passed through that period where there are very low levels of crime and criminal justice involved. So, I mean, I think you got to you know, think about that and try to not exacerbate the problem because those people are exiting um, and you don't want to trap them in the system. And I think that's what happened before was, you know, we, we had a period where a lot of young people got involved in crime and we created rules that emphasized prior punishment in such a way that we kept them in the we kept them in the snake for a very long time. And I think that's a big concern a lot of people have is that we don't learn our lessons from the eighties. We'll end up creating another huge bubble that stays with us for a long time
0: uh, without necessarily reducing crime. So let me ask you, I can't remember if we talked about it last time. What is your view of, of broken window policing? Well, I mean, obviously there's lots of different definitions of, of broken window policing. And in
1: terms of what exactly it means and how it, It's uh, implemented. Um, I think the idea that in a community, I mean, the the foundational idea of broken windows was that a a community that has order um, is going to be less susceptible uh, to uh, misbehavior by residents or visitors than if it was not ordered. That they'll, and I think that there's a lot of evidence that you know what Rob Sampson and calls you know, collective efficacy matters, that even communities that are poor, if they have a sense of working together and enabled to solve problems as a community, they will have less crime than places that don't. And policing can contribute to that in some way, but it can also degrade that. So um, when you, uh, you know, so it, it becomes a question of disorder policing, right? So this is the model that happened under Bill Bratton in New York City, where the conversation was about using the police to create order, so dealing with the squeegee men or, or whatever it was. And that, and that probably had some impact. The problem is if it becomes a quota or some type of, 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 of feature where that's the only thing you're trying to do um, and you're not paying attention to the larger community culture that you're trying to create. So, I mean, I think there's evidence that proactive policing definitely works. Right? that's and, and broken windows what you're calling broken windows policing is a component of that and that's the decision by the national academy of sciences but there were also risks right because it, being proactive means you you're going to go to places that are more crime prone or have more relation uh, crime reported and you're going to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do and so that runs the risk of alienating people it runs the risk of uh, creating a sense that people are being targeted. So th- there are risks involved, but the evidence is that, and that's worth paying attention to, but the evidence is that it does work.
0: First of all, I want to talk about the shoplifting stuff because I think that gets misreported a lot. Um, it is less to do with miscreant individual young people than it has to do with actually, organ- it's essentially organized crime, right? And there's a role that things like the internet play in it because you (laughs) have now this ability to resell, um, purloined stuff from Walgreens or Rite Aid or whatever. But I I guess just, again, for the sort of level setting of this is like, what is your expected? What is your preferred explanation? I, I predict it will be nuanced and complicated, but (laughs) what is your preferred explanation for why crime went down and then started going up?
1: Yeah, it's actually, you know, I'm glad that you think I'm nuanced and complicated, but in this particular case, I may disappoint you.
0: Uh Uh,
1: I think the reason why crime went down is that the the things that caused the crime boom stopped. I don't think explanations about like lead or other things like that are particularly compelling because we didn't go down to levels, you know, for example, consider the debate about lead or abortion, right? That the idea that these things happened uh, in the seventies and then, uh, you know, then the crime started dropping in the mid 90s when these kids when kids that were affected by these things reached you know the peak ages of crime well the crime dropped the crime rates dropped but they dropped to levels that we saw in the 60s and i don't know about you but there's a lot of lead and um ab- you know not abortion happening in the 50s and, and 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 60s and so to me that doesn't seem very compelling yet i understand that you know in the united states in every in most countries there are crime booms and there are sets of the things that caused crime boom in this period are going to be different than the things that caused crime boom back in the 80s. In the 80s, it was crack. And, the, you know, so sort of the white flight and the movement out of the cities of businesses um, that kind of came together to create the perfect storm for crime. And those things eventually dissipated, right? Um, enough people died. Enough people decided this is enough that that those things stopped. And so the the, the social contextual features that created The incentives, the motivation for crime, disappeared, and so we had a crime Mm -hmm. drop. And that's why it's so important to focus on these cohort differences. I mean, I'm talking about ten years—you know, two birth cohorts, ten years apart in Chicago. The probability that the the latter cohort that came of age in the in the two thousands has an arrest by age twenty is fifty percent lower than the than the group that came of age in the ninety nineties. That's insane, right? That means that it's the environment. these kids grew up with the same type of family environments with the same level of poverty etc as the other kids did but they weren't they weren't growing up in a time period where uh, crime was exceptionally prevalent and where the features of crime were prevalent so they are much less involved in crime and i think so you know why did crime go down because the things that caused the crime boom stopped and that's what happens with crime booms There are set of conditions that exist and then they go down i mean If you think about what happened in the most recent crime boom, I think COVID had a lot to do with it. I think George Floyd had a lot to do with it. And and COVID because of the absence of um, police on the streets, but also because of the uh, absence of schooling, right? We had entire communities where all of the teenagers, you know, 80% of the kids in high school weren't in school. And we have very clear studies that show when kids are not in school, Lot they do lots of lots of other things, right? I mean, it's not this is not surprising. So, and what's going on now is the renormalization where people are going to be are in school, and there, you know, there's more there's more movement in commercial centers and things like that. And so, to me, it's it's the absence of the thing that caused the crime boom that leads to the crime
0: drop. So, a layman listening to this, uh, listening to that, I mean, there's something on the one hand, there's something profoundly conservative about it, right? Which is sort of that. You know what is it, Edmund Burke says, example is the school of mankind and he will learn no other. Sometimes younger people have to see the mistakes of the people just a little bit older than them and see how unpleasant that is. And they say, I, I don't want to do that. And um, and societies and communities adjust bad behavior by condemning bad behavior and all that. I, I get all of that. But it also sounds like you, you, your narrative is remarkably devoid of actual Public policy successes or failures in that story, right? It is simply that there are exogenous conditions that lead to, I mean, it makes sense in some sense in terms of like the, the pan, the pandemic stuff, but crime did go down dramatically. There are a lot of politicians on the left and the right who argue about what the public policies were that led to it. And do you sort of, do you, I mean, other than proactive policing, which you has a, is it sort of a double-edged sword? or as a, as a cost benefit, as, as trade-offs to it, which I think is probably indisputable. Are there not public policies that, that either through failure or success affected the way the, the line moved on the graph when it comes to crime over the last 25 years?
1: So the first thing that I think is worth pointing out is that it's really hard to explain anything that goes up and down pretty much everywhere. (laughs) So that's, you know, as a, you know, causal story, you'd like to have things that went up in one place and down in another. And you can see where the, you know, what ha- places that went up, what happened to them and places that went down, what happened to them. And so it's very hard to explain national trends of anything. Um, the second thing is that I mean there isn't it isn't the case that people don't think incarceration led to some of the, you know, for example, the increase use of incarceration led to declines in crime. It, it's just not given all of the credit. It's given 20 percent of the credit and so you know and you have a bunch of things that account for some percentage of of the reduction but you know the new york city uh story is is one that often gets cited because of the problem oriented policing but crime went down lots of places including places that didn't have problem-oriented policing now new york city was particularly dramatic and so i think it's but i think it's a i wouldn't say exogenous in a sense i mean i think I think it's largely endogenous in the sense that there's a you know the stock market is pretty endogenous right and there's a response and at the end of the day there's no sig- there's no no signal left it's all noise because people are responding to the information they get and that's what's happening I think in the in the market for crime where you know people do uh, respond by moving away or you know buying more security or. You know, enough people join gangs that the returns to gang activity drop. So there's evidence like, say, the wages from dr- participating in crime went way down. Uh, uh, in dr- I'm sorry, for drugs went way down in the in eighties the and nineties, um, whereas the returns used to be fairly high. They went they're basically minimum wage. Um, so there's lots of things that change, but I think the so the issue here is social context matters a lot. And I'm not sure that's necessarily conservative because a lot of Liberals want to talk about social contexts, right? The, the the community environments, and and we do have evidence that things like poverty, right? Children's uh, childhood poverty dropped fifty percent in the last twenty years. Did that have an impact? You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I, it, can I prove it? Not really, because it's the kind of thing where child poverty went up and down for pretty much everybody, right? It's not like there are some places that receive DITC benefits and other places that didn't. So I, I think that um, it's just very hard to show, but I and, and I don't think what I'm saying is it just sort of happens with with nobody responding, uh, or uh, but I think it's a, a it's a larger uh, set of things that are happening in response to whatever is happening that eventually um, makes the crime boom go away. Um, you know, for example, you know, a lot of the activity in the mid '80s was about open air drug markets. Well, what do you know about the 1990s? Cell phones right so now there are very few open air drug markets in the united states right because that's not how you do business anymore and that results in a lot less violence um and so i think you know there are examples they're idiosyncratic right and that they're, they're true for across different environments um and 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 the very nature of crime rooms in the united states is that every crime room is different right and so you you can't predict what's going to happen and you can but you can explain it in the in retrospect but the factors are always different and the responses are always different but you have to but again remember that kids who grew up in one environment have much different levels of criminal justice involvement than kids who grew up in a different environment and so they're being affected by the environment in very important ways Um, and that, you know, I have a paper that shows that those, that is then causally linked in the, the, to the best that I can show causal, uh, to whether you're involved in prison when you're in your thirties. So like, for example, you're aware of research that says you come out of college, uh, during a recession, your career earnings are going to be depressed, right? Well, it's the same thing. If you come of age, um. Uh, in you know, to your young teens, when there's a crime wave, you're going to be a, have a much higher percent probability of being in prison when you're in your 30s than if you had come of age at a later eight, a later time when crime wasn't so prevalent. So I think you know is how would you describe the, the story about the recession and and your career earnings because you know are not small differences. Would you say that's conservative? Would you say that's liberal?
0: Oh, I, I didn't mean conservative in the left right sense. I meant in a sort of small c kind ah. of like General Kutusov in, in in War and Peace, who says time and patience will solve these problems in, in the sense that, and, and, and you corrected me on some of it, so that's, that's fine, but I, I wasn't saying, oh, you sound like a right-winger on this, because right-wingers aren't making the argument that you're making, I mean the argument that you're making is that a lot of the easy fixes that a lot of right-wingers propose aren't necessarily the... The way to fight crime, right? I mean, or they have lots of costs that
1: might, right. you know, and, and I, you know, I think one of the things is that the best example that I have in my research is prior records, right? We went from a system that didn't really influence, uh, use prior records very much to one where prior records drive a lot of, of the, the probability that you go to prison. In fact, a lot of the increase that you see in incarceration rates are due to the fact that uh, the people that are coming in front of the criminal system now have much higher, much longer records. And, and what that does is it creates a situation where if you expose a generation to uh, lots of crime because they come of age during the crime boom, they're going to be exposed to the criminal justice system at much higher rates for the remainder of their lives. And even if the probability they're going to commit crimes is dropped, um, because now we know that people that have records are just much more likely to be convicted if they're arrested. They're more likely to be arrested if they commit a crime. They're more likely to go to prison if they're convicted. I mean it's just it just keeps going higher and higher and higher. And yet the crime benefits to putting a 40 year old in prison are pretty low. Um, and so I think that you know we repeat our mistakes um, in terms of you know that not repeat our mistakes, I shouldn't say that, but I mean it, I don't think we fully understand the consequences of those things and they last a long time. You know, and they have consequences outside of the criminal justice system. Think about the homeless population. So there's a lot of concern about the you know this large homeless population and you know and how prone to death they are you know who they are right they're not people that they're not 20 year olds they're not 25 year olds they're not 30 year olds they look like you and me jonah and guess what almost all of them had some prior experience in the criminal justice system right it's um it, you know there, it creates consequences that you really want to think about because and this gets back to the thing that you know, we're going to talk about eventually, you promised. I promise, which is, which is <laughs> that people with records have problems in the labor market. and some of that's legitimate, but some of it's not. And, and, and I think that's something you, that I don't think people consider enough in terms of the consequences to how you respond to the criminal justice, uh, how you respond to these uh, sort of society-wide increases in crime. And the consequences that they have over a long period of time for society as well
0: as for individuals. All right, so I promise we're going to get to the record stuff in just two seconds, but I'm, I, I'm just putting myself in the place of a lot of my listeners. I don't know. I, guy, I have to talk to the producer guy because I'm not sure your track record I'm getting back to things in two seconds <laughs> is all that good. All right. Well, two seconds is figurative, not literal. Uh, yeah. That said, um, I understand. I think it's a very good point about how it's hard to find discrete explanations, causal explanations and national trends, right? But a lot of people will say, I can hear, the, I, can, I can see the emails now saying, well, how do you explain San Francisco, right? That San Francisco seems to be an outlier, even among national trends and the chase of Boudin policies and the not enforcing crime stuff. And a lot of it, I don't know what, I haven't looked into what the violent crime stats are for San Francisco. It seems to me that a lot of it is sort of petty larceny and also just quality of life stuff. And there are open air drug markets, it seems to me that public policy has to play a role in explaining some of that, given that I, at least it appears to me, both anecdotally and from what I read, that San Francisco is an outlier for these national trends as well.
1: Yeah, I'm not an expert in San Francisco. Uh, at least uh, I, I didn't spend time boning up on San Francisco before our call. So that's fine. I, I, uh, I think that I'd I, I, be careful that I'm I'm not saying that so public policy doesn't work or that, you know, policing doesn't have an impact. I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming that it does. Um, I think the, the question is that the behavior, as we got back to, at the beginning, right, you know, we talked about collective efficacy and the, and the ability of communities to, to enforce informal social control themselves. The, the vast majority of crime control in this country does not happen through public policy. It happens through Uh, the actions of individuals and community most of the reason why people don't do things doesn't have anything to do with the criminal justice system right that's formal social control there's a lot of things about informal social control that drive your behavior whether it be the fact that mrs jones is going to catch you if you do something in the neighborhood or at school or that your mom's going to do something or find out about it or or that you know your spouse might not like it if you did this or or whatever in other words you know, the primary glue that holds society together and creates order is informal social control, not formal social control. Formal social control kind of comes in after informal social control has failed. And so, you know, when I, I'm puzzled by the fact that we don't want to examine why we've experienced, you know, California, there was an 87% decline in violent arrests for youth, 87%. In places like, San- for you know, 1995 versus 2019, holy Moses, why was that? What did people do? We're talking about, you know, communities that we typically think of as high crime, including African-American communities. And yet the crime dropped a lot. And do I think that's only, you know, because of the police? No one thinks that's just because of the police. That's because something happened in these communities that led to differential behavior patterns. And why aren't we trying to find out what it is? And why aren't we trying to learn what it was that led to this? And I think Patrick Charkey's work is important in this respect. But I think, you know, it's, you know, you you need the police because sometimes the informal social control doesn't work. But the vast majority of what's going on is within order in the communities has nothing to do with the police. And so I think that's, you know, something that has to be understood that the, the things that drive crime are often sort of, things that are affecting the way that communities relate to one another or in the, the opportunities that are present, et cetera. Um, you know, for example, social media that makes it easy to learn how to steal Kia's or whatever. Um, but then in the, the police can have some response to it, but that's not only that, right? So now Kia is going to fix that, right? So there's a lot less car thefts than there used to be because there are these ignition locks and other devices that policy and, and person, you know, private security created to try to solve the problem. And then policing is part of the story, but not the whole thing.
0: Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe 10,000 or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest. It is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says of what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Okay, so let's turn to to your research. Is that your way of saying you don't you don't like that
0: answer, Jonah, or or no, do you want to I mean, hold I, your promise about like getting back to something? I want to keep my promise to you, and I. Oh, uh, good. Um, and I could I could pepper you with all sorts of questions about all that if you like, and we can go back and do Marvin Wolfgang again if you like that too. But um, I figured. Ooh,
1: oh, he's. He's pulling out the heavyweights, <laughs>
0: um, but uh, I figure we should we should get to this. So, like, why don't you just sort of walk me through the key findings? Yeah, so I, I think this is particularly relevant for the discussion that we're having because we have a situation where uh, right now
1: we have a very tight labor market, and during tight labor markets, you get to the end of the queue, and people with records are at the end of the queue. So, what what we're able to show is that. Um, right before covid uh when the labor market was as tight as it is now um 46 percent of the men who were looking for work so they're unemployed looking which means they were actively in the labor market looking for work had a criminal conviction as an adult for a Mm non-traffic offense and you know now important to note that you know it's not that you know that Criminal records are fairly common. 30% of all men of the same age had a record, but it was particularly common among those that were looking for work. And so if you were looking for workers, you were going to see a large number of people that have records. Um, and so you're going to, you know, that the large employers, 90, 95% of them, do background checks. We did a survey that said that about 75% of job seekers face a criminal background check. So what are you going to do with these folks? and we, you know, what we find is that there are some sectors that are more likely to hire them than others, but they were the same sectors that got hammered during COVID. So, the, you know, how do you start to encounter the ability that you know, if you're looking for workers, you're going to have to deal with the fact that many of them have criminal history records. So what what does that mean? Well, the first thing that it means is that you can't say that everyone with a record is going to be a problem if they get hired. Because, crime peaks in the, in the late teens. So, you know, the the central fact of criminal justice involvement and criminal activity is people change, right? I I mean, especially to your male listeners, how many people, you know, how many of them know someone or they themselves did something that was fairly seriously criminal when they were young? You know, if most of you didn't just raise your hand, you're lying. Right. I mean, (laughs) right. And, and so, you know, and so, when I say, you know, 30% of adult males by the age of 35 in the United States have a record if they, you know, they were like our age, it would be something if all of them were still actively involved in crime. In fact, we'd have a crime rate that's something like 10 times higher than we have now, right? And so they stop. So people change, people exit, right? People are not the same when they're 35 as when they're 20. Thank God, I guess, right? I mean, that's a good thing. Um, so the problem becomes identifying people who change. And in the old paradigm, the way people thought about this was that people with records were always higher risk than everyone else. That's just not true. Um, there are people with records who become very low risk. And in fact, in some situations could be lower risk than the people without records. For example, consider someone who's 35 who committed a crime when he was 25, um, who hasn't committed a crime for the last 10 years. Who would you rather hire him or the 22 year old with no record? In terms of risk of offending, it's quite possible that the 22-year-old with no record has um, a higher chance of getting uh, arrested in the next year. So you really want to think this through. And But the problem, I think, is that the policy discussion about how to do this is, is fairly limited. Um, and it's based on some bad facts, which is a real problem. And that, you know, so I'll ask you a question, Jonah. What do you think the single biggest thing that government policymakers and employers look at when they look at a criminal history record? What feature of the criminal history record do, they, do you think they focus on?
0: I, I honestly have no idea. But if I had to if I put on the spot, I would say whether it was violent or not. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Type of crime. So the question is, you know, is it violent? Was it a felony? Um, you know, if, if you're going to hire someone to be a cashier, whether they committed crimes with money before, things like that. The type of crime is the single biggest factor. It's the factor that um, the government says you can use. Um, it is also unpredictable of your chances of offending in the future once you control for age and the number of times you've been convicted in the past. So let me just repeat that. The single biggest factor is crime type, and that that factor is well-known in criminology circles um, to not be predictive of anything. And, and the reason is because people who commit crimes are not specialists right? You're a specialist. You do podcasts Mm -hmm. and and say wise things uh, about Mount (laughs) Methuselah or whoever that you bring up on a regular basis, right? But that's not the way people who are involved in crime are, right? So people who deal drugs also commit violence. They also steal stuff, right? There's a generalist element, you know? And the best way to sum this up is when, you know, criminologists try to come up with a number between zero and one, where one is you always commit violent crime, you're a specialist, and zero is you randomly commit property violent crime the number that you come up with it's like close is like 0.17 people are generalists and so the information about type of crime is not predictive um and there's a reason why people think it is and it's called hindsight bias right so you, you know you come up with someone and you say oh gee he, you know suppose you hired someone and he committed a violent effect and violent crime on your on the job and you look back and you go oh you committed a violent crime before you should have known well, the problem is there's a lot of people who committed violent crime who didn't go on to commit another crime, But right? You can't see the desisters. You only see the guys
0: that committed another crime. And the predictive power of that is is pretty low. Does that hold across different, I mean, all crime types? I mean, I'm largely
1: some... true for all crime types. There are certain crime types that are slightly more likely to be specialized. Mm-hmm. Sex offenses mm-hmm. is, is an example of something that looks um, more specialist. And remember, I'm saying once you control for a number of crimes, right? DWI, for example... But once I, you know, uh, control for the fact that you've had three previous crimes, i.e. three previous DWIs, it's no more predictive than now that you have a DWI than anything else. Um, but I think, you know, the degree of specialization, let me, let me just give you two numbers and, and see if it makes sense to you. So if you look at people coming out of prison for sex crimes, right, those that were in prison for a sex crime are four times more likely to commit a sex crime in the next five years than the people who weren't in prison for a sex crime that sounds like a specialist right well let, let me tell you the next part of the number which is that the probability they're going to commit another sex crime is two percent so two percent of the time they're going to commit another sex crime and they're going to recidivate about half the time for something else in other words 96 percent of the time when they commit another crime they're, they're not going to commit a sex crime and so uh, and the number of four people that didn't commit a sex crime is like half a percent. So they're much more likely to commit lots of other things than they are commit sex crimes. So what are you going to feature? The fact that they're more likely to commit a, a sex crime or you're going to focus on the fact they're committing uh, other crimes as well? And so um, I, I think that the reality is we just have a tendency to, to look backwards. And yet when we're talking about prediction, you're thinking you have to think forward. You have to look at everybody who's in the set of what you could be done and then consider what happens going next. And when you do that, there's just not a lot of evidence of specialization. And so a lot of the policies that are preventing people from working are based on this idea that the type of crime matters. And it doesn't, at least when it comes to predicting recidivism. Um, and that's a, that's a really profound thing um, because one of the issues that comes up is the eeoc has has ruling has a jurisdiction in this area right because criminal history records are correlated with race and so you can't use features that are correlated with race if they have disparate impact but the single biggest factor they'd say you can use this crime type because it's apparent you know they said back in the 70s that it's correlated with recidivism it isn't and so i think you know what we have as a situation is So, I can be able to show in in research that I did in New York, where if you consider crime type as required by state statute, you do two things. One, you do not improve your prediction ability whatsoever, and you increase the racial disparity in the hiring process. So, it's like the worst of both worlds. So, we're currently using a feature that is not predictive and um, increases racial disparity. So, You know, what that means is there's a lot of people that could be working um, that are um, not given an opportunity because of ill-considered ideas about what's relevant. There are other things that help you predict, like age and the number of priors. But, you know, the single biggest thing is how many years it's been since you were involved in the criminal justice system. As you get longer and longer, it's, you know, much less likely. Um, The other thing that, that really... You know if you work in this space remember this is really relevant because there's a lot of people looking for workers and there's a lot of workers many of whom have criminal justice records who want to work and um but the problem comes up is that uh they're not being allowed and yet the evidence is overwhelming that they've actually taken a different that they've changed that they've desisted, they've moved on to a different path so you hear these crazy stories about like well someone was working in my store for three years they were a great employee. They, they got promoted to management. We did a background check and we found that they had a record six years ago. And now I'm not going to promote them. And I'm, in fact, I'm going to fire them. When what's the most relevant piece of information here? The fact that six years ago they committed a crime or that they worked for you for three years and were a great employee? And, and it's stunning to me that people aren't believing their own eyes, right? Because people are
0: not realizing, you know, taking into account the fact that people change. And they do. It's funny. I mean, just as an anecdote, I have a friend who's very successful in the financial sector and they had a situation like that where a guy was working in it. Turned out that he had a criminal record. He lied on the application about it and they really agonized about it and they wanted to keep him on. They thought, you know, he gave every bit of evidence that his life has changed. The problem is, is that when you're dealing with, outside investors and financial regulators. Yep. You they had no choice. They gave them a very generous severance. They they helped them find a different job, but like at the same time, they couldn't keep them on even if they wanted to because they would be in breach of all sorts of other legal, you know. Right.
1: We've created a system that's based on a false premise. Right? A lot of the, a lot of the rules are government generated about who can work and who cannot work in certain environments and in certain situations. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Like do we really want people that have been convicted of child sex offenses to be working with children? Even and I, and I think I think you know none of my evidence is going to make you. First of all, there's not enough evidence on child sex offenses, which thank God are very rare. Um, but also, abundance of conscience, really vulnerable victims. Let's let's not go there. But there's a lot of other places where um, you know the evidence is you know very clear that this isn't predictive and you're just creating racial disparity without any benefit. Um, And, you know, we're sort of stuck in this environment where policies created in the, in the seventies, which is when this really started to go, um, uh, aren't based on good science and the the question is, what are you going to do about it? And I don't know, but um, I think it's a really important time to have this conversation um, both because of what we started talking about, right? Are we going to, are we going to make the criminal justice system harsh again so that we create lots of people with records um, so that we then have to the worry about this in 20 years? Um, and what are we going to do about this tight labor market where a lot of the people who are looking for work and would make good employees have criminal history records um, and you know, continuing to punish uh, companies as well as individuals for things that they did in the past that they've moved away from? Um, it seems, especially when you have additional information on people like, hey, look, they were an employee for three years um, uh, is, uh, is I think, really problematic.
0: What would be your preferred policy approach on this? Would it be to prohibit employers from asking about criminal records or just simply let the market, let let employers ask what they want to ask or not want to ask? Or is it? I mean how how do you approach it?
1: Yeah, so I think that, you know, one of the classic responses to this for people that are concerned about people with records is to say, let's ban criminal background checks. The problem, I think, and is that employers want this access to this information. There's real concern about liability risk, but also about performance on the job, about the way people deal with clients, all kinds of things, right? And so um And people often use examples like Europe in Europe, where they don't have access to records in nearly the same ease as we do. And, and and the the weird thing there is now in the, in Europe, it's becoming much more common for companies to do background checks. So I I think denying employers access to information that they think is important is never a good idea because they then start using other information that might be correlated with that. And that's going to have negative effects on, uh, uh, for example, racial groups like my, uh, African-Americans who might be have higher probabilities of records, particularly those people without records, right? Who won't have any way of uh, identifying themselves as having no record. Um, so what I think is much wiser is to have really good information systems where you have reliable criminal history records, which we don't have in the United States very well for a number of different factors, reasons, I should say. And then the other thing we should do is... is have intelligent use of criminal history records, right? Don't use factors and feature factors that don't matter. Um, and, and the biggest element of that is crime type. Um, that is given way more importance than it should be in terms of what people say should matter, which is the risk of committing another crime. Um, and so I think we could have a more intelligent use. We got a better information that's being used. Um, And then we could also use that information more wisely uh, in ways that uh, provide a realistic picture and provide a pathway for people who have committed crimes to to make it reintegrate into society, which is after all the goal, right? Every single person with a record can never get a job again. This is not going to be good for the rest of us.
0: Right. And also it's, I mean, you can be a real law and order type, but if if you've paid your debt to society, as the phrase goes then you've paid your debt to the society. It shouldn't be a lifetime Mark of Cain that says, you know, oh, and by the way, it's five years in jail and you can't get a job for the rest of your life. That wasn't what a jury ruled. Right. And, or what a judge sentenced someone to. And yeah. And just remember, we're talking about a lot of people,
1: right? We're talking about, you know, 50% of the men by the time of men by the time they're 50 are gonna have at least an arrest and possibly a conviction. Right? I mean we're talking about huge parts of the of the population that are gonna get involved in the criminal justice system. Um, and so I think and that's true in Europe, it's true in the United States. Um, and so you have to be really careful. I mean, it's one thing if you think it's a small po- part of the population, but it's not. And so you have to be really considerate of that. And that's one of the one of the hopeful things is a lot of people with records have jobs. Employers regularly hire people with records. You may not know them, but they do. Um, and, and and employers are willing to hire more people with records when given incentives to do so. So there's this isn't a neither-or situation. It's uh, um, could we think about ways to do this in such a way that more people are integrated in a community? And since I've done some of the work that shows that people who want to work who can't work are more likely to commit crimes, we as a society will benefit more if we find ways to make this happen. The hard part is that the company doesn't benefit when, when Jonah doesn't commit a crime because he has a job. The company doesn't benefit for the most part because those crimes are usually committed off the job. But, but I do as a society, as a member of society, I benefit that Jonah's not out there running around doing crime. And so we as a society have some incentive to, to, to try to find ways to solve this problem. And I think we are in a good, ap- a good place to do so now with a really tight labor market, uh, because you know, there's a lot of people looking for workers. Uh, and one of the group that's left that doesn't have the jobs is people with records and, and the pe- and the records are one of the reasons why they're not getting employed.
0: So I have a, I have a sort of a, just a broad brush methodological question, which I'm sure you deal in, with in your, some of your intro classes, but is one of the reasons why the people with one crime, you know, uh, on their record that it's not predictive of future crimes is because the people for whom one crime would have been predictive went on to commit more crimes. And so they're not in the sample anymore. Right. I mean, are, are the, are the, the people inclined to be repeat offenders. They're not out looking for jobs because they're already in jail. I mean, it just, it,
1: how, yeah, this is a really good, uh, I hate when people say it's a good question, like i become the arbiter for a good question, but that is the heart of the matter. So one of the things that people often say is that we know that almost everybody coming out of prison recidivates. So it must be that everybody recidivates. Well, it turns out that's not the right sample. There there are statistics in the Bureau of Justice Statistics that says, okay, for example, of all those people who left prison in 2004, uh, 80% of them get rearrested in the next nine years. So you say, well, gee, everybody recidivates. The problem is the group of people that got released from prison in 2004 uh, is not a random sample of everybody that went to prison um, because it's an over, it's over-representing it's over the people that failed multiple times. So a lot of the, the people who go to prison are, are what you said, frequent offenders. Um, and there are many people that go to prison or get convicted for the first time and never get convicted again. Um, so they are less likely to show up in a sample if you just grab a group of people that are exiting prison in any given year. And so you're, you're overestimating the actual recidivism risk um, by 30 to 40%, depending on what measure you're talking about, and even more than that if you're talking about convictions. And that's really important to remember because it's exactly what you said. The guy that offends once, gets convicted, and never shows up again. Right, isn't going to be collected in a sample of recidivists. Um, And so we have these great statistics on recidivism from the Bureau of Justice Statistics that are wonderful for the criminal justice system. They're fantastic. right? If I'm a prison superintendent and I want to know who's going to fail, those are the numbers I want to know. But if I'm thinking about from an employer's perspective, who do I want to know about? Well, I want to know the people who are free in in the community who haven't committed another crime. And the people that have failed, I don't really care about because they're not available for work anyways. And so the, the recidivism risk for those people that are free in community and haven't committed another crime is much lower than the numbers that get thrown around here. And that's a real frustration, right? Because it's it's based on bad facts, again. Um, and then this... The, I was very happy that you brought that up. It's almost like I told you about it ahead of time, which I didn't (laughs) for the record, because it's a really important thing that people fail to understand. They keep repeating these recidivism statistics by the government, which are intended for the use of the criminal justice system and not for, say, groups like employers who are concerned about the recidivism of people who've ever been to prison or ever been convicted.
0: This is a slightly different issue because the people that you're talking about are essentially a different population but you know the you know there's daniel penny case in in new york city the guy who put the homeless guy in a chokehold and you know if you read the record of the of the person he he killed this guy I mean, we keep you keep mentioning you know our similar ages i grew up in new york city in the in the 70s and 80s and there's a real larry Hogue you know madman on 96th street vibe to the guy who died i'm not trying to disparage him it's it, the whole thing is tragic but it, i think the, the the tragedy is in part because this young man had serious mental health issues he was on a list of the most concerning cases in the entire system and there were talk about hindsight bias there were a number of times where this guy did really terrible things and the system sort of said, eh, we're going to look the other way. Um, I'm just for the sort of conservative kid who grew up in New York city, dealing with all the crime stuff. This thing really just pings a lot of nostalgia is the wrong word, but you know, it, it feels like a very much a flashback to arguments we had in the, in the seventies and eighties, particularly about the mentally ill. I'm just wondering how do you look at cases like that? I, I think everyone sort of agrees that our, mental health system has really failed a lot of people, but it overlaps so much with crime. Um, and I think a lot of the things that make that piss off people about crime are really things that they should be pissed off about the mental health system. But I'm just wondering how you think about it.
1: Well, I to stay on the thread for a second. That person, you know, I think there was one year that person had 20 uh, criminal justice convictions or experiences with the criminal justice system. So if you just look at people that are going in and out of the system in any given year, that guy is going to be a big part of the story, right? However, that guy didn't, wasn't looking for a job. He wasn't trying to get employed. He, you know, that, he wasn't capable of that. And so we should be very careful when talking about, if you're talking about people that are in the labor market looking for work, not letting statistics that are driven by individuals like that, who are deeply embedded in the criminal justice system, among other things. Um, drive your perception of what recidivism looks like. Um, and because I'm telling you, the recidivism rates for the population of people who are looking for work who have a criminal history record are far lower than the overall population of people uh, who've, who came out of prison yesterday or, or have a criminal conviction, right? So we really have to be careful. And that's why we've, we've titled our, our work at RAND uh, Resetting uh, the Record, because... You really want to think about when you're talking about employment, you want to be talking about the population of people who are looking for work. And that's a very different population than the overall population of people involved in the criminal justice system, which is dominated by people that are, you know, very frequent involvement with the criminal justice system. So we'll we'll go to Marvin Wolfgang because you want to so bad. <laughs> but Wolfgang, you know, had the result that said five percent of the people who get arrested are responsible for fifty percent of all arrests, right? So there's a few people that are responsible. No,
0: all, all crimes, right? Well, you,
1: you can't say crimes because you don't have the data on all crimes. So he often used the word crimes, but he meant the word arrest because that's what he had records of. Okay. Right. So I try to use the word I mean, which in this case is the data I have, which okay. is arrest. Right. But yeah, so, uh, arrests. And so, you know, it really is the case that if you allow your perception to be driven by that 5%, you will drastically overestimate the involvement in the criminal justice system of the, of the editors. Now, is there a room for a discussion about what to do with individuals like that? Yes. Is there, uh, you know, and I think the system was trying. And I think New York is at the forefront of, of, of things like that. I mean, New York has a Incredible track record of not holding people on detention pretrial, right? I mean, they they have the lowest rate of pretrial detention in the in the in the country by a lot, um, and they've done a lot of things that are that are very um, focused on the individual. And but there are limits, um, and particularly in the current legal landscape, about what you can do in terms of commitment. Um, and so I think there is some there's some you know is it possible that we might want to have a a system that we can allow people to be committed and i'm not qualified to have that conversation but it is a conversation that we've had in the past and made a decision that it should be very very difficult to commit someone against their will at which point people's hands are tied and then you blame the cops right or and i and i think that's really unfortunate because it's you know people who become police officers didn't become social workers right there there is elements of formal social control and i don't know about you but i'm not really excited about living in a world without some element of formal social control and i don't think most people are either um but they're not that's formal social control is only part of the story and uh and i do think we have to have a more active conversation about uh, what to do with individuals who are they don't have mental health or other issues that are leading to their behavior problems that are affecting everyone else.
0: It seems to me getting back to your work. Um, if I were an employer looking to hire somebody who roughly fit the demographic profile of someone who had been in jail, but was turning their life around and all that. I, the thing I would, I would want to focus on more than anything else. perhaps. I mean, I still would want to know the type of crime to be brutally honest. I mean, I just, I don't know if I could ever let that go. I understand all your cautions about it, not being predictive and all of that, but I'd want to have a conversation about what happened, you know, kind of thing. But the thing I would be very much interested in is, um, their drug test results. And it seems to me that like, I would rather have for sure somebody who had a, you know, a conviction from when they were young they made a mistake they, young men do stupid things. I will not recount all the young, stupid things I did when I was young. I understand that entirely, but there are all sorts of jobs that it just seems to me. I mean, we can have an argument about weed, but like any drug beyond weed, um, there are lots of jobs for which that just simply has to be a non-starter. Um, and I'm wondering how much does that play into these kinds of questions for you?
1: So let me back up one step and simply say that I'm not saying that employers shouldn't be worried about crime type, because there's lots of reasons they should be worried about crime type, but the reasons have nothing to do with predicting recidivism, Mm -hmm. right? So they can get sued for negligent hiring, and hindsight bias is a big feature there, and you have to acknowledge that. It's also brand awareness. Uh, And so I think you should be aware of what person uh, crime they committed, but I think you ought to be very careful about using that as the only feature. And, and what you just said is essentially that their current behavior, i.e. drug use, matters a lot for describing where they are currently, and I think that's the, the central element, is that judging people by what they did before, as opposed to what they're doing now, seems really problematic because what they're doing now is the key key story, right? The person, I you know, you hear these stories about the you know, person who was involved in drugs, and you meet these people, right? They... They were involved in drugs. They were heavily addicted. They did a bunch of things that are really bad. They go to prison. They come out. They are no longer involved in drugs. They are not using anymore. They've changed their lives. You can see they changed their life. They've done education programs. They did this. They did that. They did the other thing. They're not the same person who committed the crime that put them in prison. And at some point, you have to acknowledge that is real because it is. Um, and so using measures of the current behavior, whether it be drug use or something else that rele- that is that tells you what they're currently doing is really important. And when that information is used, you don't need the other information. And that's the part that's really problematic, right? Where people act as if the old information is more relevant or important than the, the information about what persons or people are currently doing. And that's just simply not the case. And so I think... Focusing on drug tests or whether or not they showed up to their rehabilitation programs or to their training programs and whether they were on time, or whether someone would vouch for them in the community it tells you a lot about where they are and recognizing that because people do desist, people do change. Um, even people that are pretty heavily involved in crime change. I mean, I'm sure you've met them. I, I, I have too, where, you know, people that committed terrible things when they were in their 20s and 30s they are now very different people.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. I mean, I, I, it's been a while since I read up on it, but I know there's a big chunk of social science research on this applying to terrorists, right? Um, and that middle-aged terrorist, which uh, sometimes is a rare breed, but like the the really heinous acts that are committed by you know, you know, Islamic jihad or whatever, it's the young young men who are doing it and. Um, people age out of that where there are enormous number of social um, and institutional pressures to sort of stay in the terrorism game. But people lose their taste for for doing terrible things, even when there's an entire nationalistic, ideological, religious you know, narrative supporting it. And then at some point, someone just says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. And you can imagine where there's much less of that. You know, I mean, I'm, there's something roughly analogous in some gangs, I suppose. But really, you know, it's like being in a gang is weird if you're past 30 years old.
1: You know, well, a gang membership isn't nearly as long term as people think it is. Right. It's, it's got the same sort of people are in and people out uh, kind of trajectory.
0: This is probably a somewhat depressing question, but how optimistic or hopeful are you about your recommendations actually working their way in anytime time soon into sort of public policy and politics. So
1: I, I tell you a, a funny story. The first time I uh, ever went in front of a corporate group to talk about this, I was invited to talk to a large employer and I, they wanted to know what the criminal justice criminology literature said about predicting risk. And the first thing I said is crime type doesn't predict anything uh, in terms of once you control for Asian type of crime. Um, I was immediately dismissed from the room where, and then I then sat for eight hours in a small office by myself until the end of the day while the person that brought me there tried to explain what i was saying um so the good news is that happened a long time ago and that doesn't happen anymore and so i i'm I'm probably preternaturally uh optimistic and i have been doing this since 1995 so but i do think that there are is a growing awareness about the problem with Taking a group of people and automatically taking them out of the workforce and other elements of society, um, and that where is a growing sense of, and I think the labor market, the tight labor market, creates an opportunity for that conversation. Um, and so, do I see people more willing to consider ideas than they used to be? Yeah. Um, think about ban the box. You know, ten years ago, ban the box was a crazy idea that that no one used, right? And now it's you know more or less the rule of the the rule of the land. In, especially for big employers. So, I mean, I think change can happen in this space. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I think, but, it, it in but you never know, right? It's one of these things where when you start out doing research like this, this is my main area of research. It's not my only area, but it's my main area. And when you start out, like when I first started doing work in this space when I was nine, in, in 1996, I was told to leave the area because no one cared. You know, five years later, people started to care. And now my work is cited in the ELC, And I talked to, People like you I say, I'd like to talk about this and you don't tell me to go shut up. Maybe it's because (laughs) you were stuck in Nantucket and you haven't talked to anybody for a couple of weeks. But, you know, uh, I'm optimistic that, you know, this is worth, this is an important topic that affects a lot of people and it has a lot of policy implications, both upstream and downstream. And so, and I I do see some evidence that people are willing to engage with the topic in new ways. So, you know, you can't do this and, and not be somewhat optimistic. Uh, and by nature, but yeah, I'm, I think it. I think that you know, there's change possible.
0: On one front, you're trying to change attitudes and perceptions in the private sector. I mean, you talk about going to this conference and explaining these things, right? And then there's being able to change public policy. Is there a specific law, like you know, that is on the books that is making this, this the acute problem that it is, or is it is it is really just a bundle of precedents, policies, um, you know, and everything in between. I mean, the uh, the, the common number is something like 30,000 federal and state and local regulations
1: that prevent people from hiring individuals with records. So it's not one, it's a lot. Um, and you know, a lot of it's based only on crime type, which is largely not helpful. What you're trying to do is predict risk. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's any one thing I, in terms of a federal policy, um, I do think there's federal policy that's possible here in the sense that, um, we as a society benefit when people with records get to work, who people, not everybody, but those, there's a large group of people with records that want to work and, uh, would make good employees, but when they can't work, they actually do have a higher chance of going to commit crime. And, um, that's not good for us. And so, uh, we as a society would benefit if, if people, employers had more incentives to hire people and there are things that gov- government can do to change the incentives and their current efforts in the space are very, very small. So there is a tax credit, but it's only available for six months after you leave prison for very serious crimes. It's, it's not very effective. They have an insurance program called the federal bonding program that's been around for 40, 50, 60 years, something like that. Um, but it's extremely small. Um, and, and yet, there's there's evidence that employers are responsive to those. Not every employer is going to change their view, but there will be some, and we as a society will benefit from that if if that in fact was the case. Um, and so, I think there are policies that can be done proactively. In other words, positive things you can do. And there's also other things. Maybe rethink all of the restrictions that are currently in place um, that place limitations on people who who might well be good employees. And so, I think it's sort of a both and kind of story in terms of uh, things that can be done.
0: All right. So one, one last question and I'll set you free. We probably talked about this last time. I just can't remember. Um, you know, it was a lot of day drinking, but so you talked about how ban the box was once sort of this radical harebrained thing. And now it's the, the law of the land, the push during the pandemic during the George Floyd period where I think a lot of people did a lot of damage to the causes they hold dear by pushing the whole defund the police thing. It was amazing to me how many sort of mainstream sort of liberal media types and politicians it showed a certain amount of sort of 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 groupthink and bubble you know and and sort of you know you could get on msnbc with an academic credential and make it sound as if this was a mainstream point of view among academics who look at the criminal justice system and You'd also go on TV as an activist and say that this was the view of the typical African-American, that they wanted to defund the police. And yet every time I looked at the polling, it's like there's just zero evidence that your average African-American citizen in this country wants zero police. Um, you know, 60, 70 percent said they wanted more police police. It's like 90% said more police or the same amount, you know, and, and somewhere between 10 and 20% said fewer police, but there's an enormous quantitative difference between saying fewer and none. Right. And, and yet this thing got so much oxygen that it allowed conservative right wing types to say, see, they really want to get rid of all the police, which was not true of most Democrats. (laughs) It was not true. uh, and, and, and so I guess part of my question is you travel in these circles, you go to these conferences, you know, like how many actual people who are actually doing real criminology work, real, real sort of recidivism work and all that kind of stuff actually believe in the defund the police, the sort of the hard version of the defund the police thing, not like, more resources being sent to social workers. I, there's some perfectly colorable, fine arguments on that front. I mean the stuff like, I remember the New York Times, it got to the point where the narrative about defund the police got to the point where lots of co- politicians were saying, look, defund the police doesn't mean abolish the police, right? And so the New York Times went and found some academic who said, and they put it in the headline, when we say abolish the police, yes, we mean abolish the police, how fringe a point of view is that, or is that an actual, real point of view among people who in in your world? I mean, I,
1: I'm not running in the advocacy circles. I'm a scientist, and so you can see I didn't give you lots of opinions about what I think you should do. I spent a lot of time trying to tell to you about the facts of the case. Um, so I, there are plenty of people who are who would be considered criminologists, typically considered critical criminologists, who believe that,
0: as in critical theory kind of criminal. Yeah. Okay. Uh
1: huh. There's a whole group of criminal critical criminologists who believe that um and i've definitely had people say in my presence you know everyone believes this and i you know i query as to whether i should raise my hand and say well, i don't sure I believe that um so I, I think it's a it's a strong undercurrent um but i think there's also a large group of people that sort of know the evidence that you suggested and um you know I, I, it's just not a lot of evidence that people want to live in a world without. Without some formal social control, now again recognizing that formal social control should be an, a, an element of what you're doing to provide a, a society we all want to live in, not the only thing. Um, you know, it's a sign of failure, right? If you have to go and put someone out on the street to prevent crime, it meant that all the other things that should have prevented crime didn't work, right? And so, um, you know, it, it's not a it's not a thing you should be proud of that you have to do. Obviously, it would be great if we all lived in a society with no cops. Um, but it, 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 it isn't the case that that's the, that that's true. And so, uh, and I, I agree with you that this perception particularly that, you know, African-Americans don't want to have police. is That's just completely not true. Um, so I, I you know, but it, it is a general, uh, you know, it is a, it is a way of thinking that exists in criminology. I, I have no sense of how many or what the percentage is. Yeah.
0: I mean, to me, it's just one of these things where I, I, it, it it's like radic- it's like some i mean there are all sorts of analogs you know radical libertarian types who think the average american wants to get rid of vast swaths of government would that that were the case but that's just not the case similarly this idea that you know the 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 average african american person i mean one of the ironies of all this is that the median african american voter is now sort of to the right of the democratic party they're the ones who got joe biden elected and, you know, the idea that middle-class black ladies in South Carolina want no police is just, it's, it's such a obviously bad political idea. And I think it's bad for the discourse because it's sort of like what my colleague, David French, former colleague, David French, always like to call nut picking is it allows people to take the most extreme form of an argument and say, see, this is what all those people believe. And it turns out, you know, you know, I have all sorts of differences with with all sorts of Democrat. You know, like what's his name Clyburn, but you know Clyburn doesn't want to get rid of police. Um, and when you talk like that, it becomes very difficult. It becomes very easy for a lot of people to dismiss anybody because they think it's all slippery slope towards you know the defund the police position, and that's just a loser politically.
1: I'll give you an example of where that kind of plays in. It, uh, I've done some recent work. i just gotten a paper published on, with uh, two colleagues, John Emberg, or uh, uh, three colleagues, John Emberg and Lucy Sorensen, the grad student. Uh, and uh, Abila Acosta is the name, last name of the grad student. Uh, I don't want to leave her out. Uh, she's great. And um, uh, we looked at, we had the first national study of school resource officers and to look what their impact is on crime uh, in the schools or problems in the school. And oftentimes when people do this kind of research, they only focus on the negative things that happen when cops go in school, suspensions, and, and you know, remembering, of course, that cops don't suspend anyone in schools that principals do. But um, And it's really interesting as to what gets the weight in different environments, but what we've been able to show consistently with a couple of different studies is that and cops do in fact reduce the amount of, uh, uh, you know, I want to say serious violence, but I don't mean shootings, because it's impossible to study shootings because they're so rare. Uh, but, you know, reasonably serious violence like fist fights and things, but it also is the case that you have more arrests and the principals end up suspending more people and, and those people tend to be uh, uh, minorities. And so there are costs to the use of police. Um, but to pretend that the costs, I mean, that there aren't also benefits is, I think, ignoring the evidence. And so, you know, is there? are there things you can do that are less costly that have some of the same benefits? Maybe. And if there is, maybe we should do those. Um, but, you know, the, the alternative to, you know, pretending that that's not going to happen, you, you, you may have some very, you know, uh, situations that might not be so great. And... And you'll see lots of that backlash in the school resource officers, right? And there was a, Denver got rid of all the school resource officers in the schools. They had a situation where a kid with a gun, your kid who kept threatening to bring a gun, the school was being searched by non-cops, um, and he he had brought a gun to school one day, and when they searched him, they shot him. And so what happened the next day is they had cops in all the schools, and a lot of people felt pretty good about that. Um, are there costs to that? Yes. Um, but, you know, people do feel better when there's some formal social control. And and, and unfortunately, there are environments where that's the fa- that's in fact the case. So I, I do think that a more nuanced version of, of that where you understand that there are costs and benefits and there are decisions you can make seems to be an irrelevant conversation. But as you pointed out, nuance is not always the point of the realm when it comes to media discussions about these things. In fact, I think earlier in this conversation, you referred to nuance in a bad way. I did not. You did. You, 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 you gave you're, me a nuance as if I had, you know, so sort of hurt your dog, which I know better than hurt your dog. You're so
0: thin-skinned about this stuff. I mean, really, oh, my gosh. Thin-skinned. Thin-skinned. All right. Sean Bushway, thank you so much for doing this. We will have you back. And uh, if you if you know Sean, you know, uh, tell him that he was too, too thin-skinned and I was right about everything. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me okay so uh, Professor Bushway has left the studio I apologize if his audio was a little off he had uh, equipment failure right before um, we started recording and we had to make do and uh, and no one should uh, hold it against him that he was uh, trying to pick fights with me a couple times Uh, that's all fine Uh, we talked about it afterwards I thought he was you know I think it's a really interesting point it's counterintuitive for a lot of people but I think it's worth you know, really thinking about it as a matter of social policy. I, I think as listeners probably know, I sort of come from a pretty straightforward certainty of punishment is more important than, than certainty of punishment as in like making sure that you, you, if you commit a crime, that there are consequences for it quickly and clearly is more important than having like really draconian prison sentences and all those kinds of things. But I'm also, you know, I, I am I'm more sympathetic to the broken windows stuff than I, th- I think Sean is. Um, but I also think he's probably entirely right that everything is more complicated. I mean, th- th- this podcast stands for very little if it doesn't stand against monocausal explanations of things. And i um, not sure when this is going to air. It may air as quickly as tomorrow or it may air later. I, I am not sure. We are on a, we are on a, a marathon of racking up, racking them, stacking them in terms of podcasts. And, um, so I don't want to say anything to you that's particularly dated because I don't know when this is going to be released. So thanks for listening. Uh, please become a dispatch subscriber. Uh, if you can It's really important, we think it's really, uh, worth the money and your time. And that's the one thing that we really, um, Sort of one of our editorial load stars is not wasting your time. So in that spirit, I'll stop wasting your time and say, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.